The other thing around productivity is trying to solve the problem once and well, as opposed to doing it multiple times. And this is particularly common in software where we will build a solution and then through building the solution, we realize a lot of things and they end up even needing to rewrite the whole thing. And if we had spent more time up front thinking about things in advance, we can often reduce rework and reduce having to redo things. Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to DSR Branding Presents. Join me as I interview brilliant business leaders on branding, marketing, design, and good business principles. These are people who think differently and have commercialized their creativity to do something remarkable. This episode is on improving productivity and leading remote teams with Matthew Barham. Matthew is CEO of Inspara, a technology company that develops energy efficiency software and hardware for enterprises. He's led software projects for global brands like Rio Tinto and Chevron, and coaches people on how to develop their soft skills through experiential learning. With a fully distributed workforce across three continents, Matthew shares great advice on how he keeps his team engaged, motivated, and productive. We discuss building trust remotely, what's wrong with typical meetings and how to fix them, how to better assess new candidates, teamwork building exercises, and employee engagement. Matthew is passionate about productivity and continuous learning, and he shares some great tools, apps, and advice on how we can all achieve more. Plus, we dive into what he does outside of work in Zen, geocaching, and rites of passage programs. There is so much valuable information and brilliant takeaways in this episode, and I'm excited to share them with you. Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show, Matt. Welcome. Happy to be here, Dan. Uh, We kick things off the same way with a simple icebreaker. So what's your favorite brand and why? Oh, uh, so there's, I couldn't narrow it down to one. So I'm going to give you two. The first one's um, Patagonia. So they're this like, uh, I'm sure everyone's heard of them, like this clothing brand. But I think what makes them so different is that they have this brand promise about the environment and sustainability and stuff. And they actually live up to it and, like including like lifetime repairs and all their gear because I had my ad, one of their jackets and ripped it as as you do and sent it to them and they repaired it, sent it back, no cost, like pretty amazing stuff. Um, and the, the other, the other one is th- there's this guy in the U S called David Smith and he makes a bunch of apps like pedometer apps and sleep apps and apps for Apple watches, they're all iPhone apps, but he's like one guy and he's like basically this fitness brand unto himself. And I'm just like, how cool is that, that someone's able to create something from nothing or or by themselves? So he's an indie, so by himself. So I think that's pretty cool in my view. So those are my two, Dan. Yeah, great. Patagonia is an awesome brand. Um, They famously released a press ad or a campaign years ago, which was a don't buy this jacket uh campaign. Oh, really? Yeah. So they just had a shot of their jacket. Um and there was a um there was a sort of some copy attached to it. I'll link it in the show notes. But yeah, it was um essentially one of their jackets and saying, don't buy this jacket, basically reuse and and uh and repair your current one. Um Do you think that really that's cool. helping them in the market? Like do you think people actually respect that kind of advertising spin or marketing spin? Yeah, I think the people that Patagonia appeal to are people who are very um, probably cynical of advertising. 
um, yeah. and and that authenticity. Uh, and I mean, they just speak to their brand promise and their and their brand values very consistently. Um, I think, yeah, I think they've just got a brand that sort of delivered on their promise and and remain consistent to their, I guess, their main purpose for a long time. Um, so I think that's just consistent with what they believe in. In that, you know, it's not about buying lots and lots of stuff. It's about buying a few things and and looking after them. Yeah, and I think there's this like if you buy something and spend a bit more upfront, you it can last a lot longer and you get a lot better, a lot better relationship with that item. And I think yeah. that's the way why I love Patagonia. It's like I, this is really mine and it's something I'll live with hopefully forever. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Uh, I haven't I haven't heard of David Smith before, but I'll, I'll be sure to check out his apps. We'll get a link to um to his his work in the show notes as well. Yeah, I'm particularly attached to his app Pedometer Plus Plus because I've got a 400-day streak that I've been working on for a while now <laughs> on 10,000 steps a day or more. And so I, I, I'm very his, – his app is very front and center to me. So, uh, it, it, But it's just simple things. Like one of the things he does in his user interface design is every time you hit 10,000 steps, the screen covers with confetti and this was a thing that he originally started doing many years ago and now a lot of other apps have taken that idea mm. and using it. And so it's like these simple things, like I get a lot of int- like satisfaction of like, oh, I'm done with my day's steps when I see that confetti. And it's simple <laughs> things like that that I think make uh, user experiences and apps just like it's an extra little touch. Like, yeah. yeah. And what, what do you reckon would happen if you, if you didn't get one day um, 10,000 steps now, now that you've got a 4,000, 400, sorry, 400 day streak. Oh, I, I think what would happen is I would just get over it. But uh, like, I haven't like it's, it's 400 day streak, but I, that if I'm being completely honest, there's like one day where i fell asleep too early and it's like 9,800 or whatever, but it, it's just like, <laughs> it is what it is. Like, and I yeah. think it's that kind of like, do my best and move on. But now I just like the key, my, my key to getting steps is pacing while I'm on the phone. So <laughs> I'm sitting down for this podcast, but normally I'd be pacing. Yeah. So highly recommended pacing to get steps. Yeah. So Matt, how did you get your start in the software development industry? Yeah, well, so it, it all started actually when I was doing this online course for software development. So I don't know if you know, Dan, but there's these uh, like I guess, boot camp programs that are online and some of them in person for people learning software development. And I did one of these. And one of the assignments was uh, like later on in the course was you had to go to a software development meetup. And there's these like meetups where software developers are getting together and having a chat and having a beer or whatever. And so there was an assignment, which is go along to one of these. So I turned up and one of the first thing they said was, put your hand up if you want a job or you're, you're interested in a job. And I, I was full-time somewhere else at the time, but I just sort of put up my hand, sort of, oh, what's going to happen here? And like five people came up to me and was like, well, can we uh, have a chat with you and look at hiring you? And it was a bit of a shock. And like long and short of it is, I, um, there was a guy leaving a company that uh, – he worked, he was leaving the company he worked for and he said, Hey, well, I think you'd be a good replacement for me. So he was basically using me to replace himself and I ended up getting that job and the rest is history. So yeah, like boot camp, and then just, just being in the right place at the right time, I guess. 
And what drew you to software development in the first place? So going back a step. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was the want to be able to create apps for myself or create the solutions for myself. I'd had a bunch of startups by that point. One in, um, we were selling uh, tiny magnetic ballpoint pens. It seems crazy now, like what a terrible idea. But at (laughs) at the time, it seemed like a great thing to do. And then after that, um, we, uh, I ran an tra- online tra- audio transcription business and we had to pay people to develop online systems for these businesses. And I was like, I'd be so much more powerful if I could create them for myself. And so I kind of like was trying to do it for that purpose of building my own apps. But uh, yeah, it, it, that's kind of the way it started, but it certainly hasn't ended that way. Like I never went down that path, it turned out. Uh, as time's gone on. So on that, it sounds like you've started a few different businesses. Do you remember what the first business you started was and how old you were? Yeah, the first one was definitely the pen, which was that pen business. And I think I was a first year out of high school, so I've been 18 or 19. Yeah, well. And I was working at the Queensland Performing Arts Centre and I had this little ballpoint pen attached to my name tag thing and I was like, oh, I'd found it online and I thought, oh, I could make these and we could, we, I, we could get rich, me and my friend Riley, we could get rich on selling these pens. <laughs> and so well, it, it, it seems crazy at the time, but like, well, it seems crazy now, but it was this thing of like, I had to learn about manufacturing and there's all these mistakes with how do you bulk manufacture metals and uh, things about ink that I never never knew that I didn't know. And it's just like, all, all like I think the thing with businesses, every business is a world unto itself. Like in mm. your business with the branding stuff, there's infinite stuff that the regular person on the street like me would have no idea about. But it's a whole world unto itself. And it was the same thing with the pens or whatever. Um, and I'm sure that's the same with a lot of businesses. Like everything's a world unto itself. Yeah. And where did you get that drive to want to start businesses and, you know, not go out of high school and, and, you know, get a job somewhere, but the idea of, well, I guess to supplement your income, create these new ventures. Where did that come well, from? The, my, my vision was always from when I was 15 that I wanted to make enough money doing my own thing that I could donate my time to things I cared about. So it was all, it was this very much driven by like, how can I make lots of money so I can give my time away? Yeah. Um, and that was the that was the driver for me, absolutely. And has that Even been consi- has that been a consistent vision? Has that changed, or are you still true to that? I'm still true to that. Although, like now, I've realised that being part of a, a bigger business is is part can be part of that too. Yeah. Um, and that if my values are aligned with the values of the companies that I'm working with or working for, in which case, at the moment, I'm in. A family company and it's so it's my thing but it's still um having the values aligned is probably the most important thing to make that possible and um i think that's why i like working with say you with in your business because i, I feel like there's a good alignment of values and like good people and good people doing good work i think is a makes for a good life yeah, absolutely. I actually said that to someone the other day. You know, they asked, why, why do I do what I do? I said, I love doing great branding for great people. And, you know, that essence of being able to just do something you love, but for people that you care about. 
And you get to meet people that you, you never would have met otherwise, I imagine, and people yeah. doing crazy stuff. Completely. Yeah. I've said before, you know, you get, you get a great insight into other businesses, people who are, you know, experts and, you know, really, really specialized in, in, in their field. Um, and you get the taste of, of what they do for work and mm. how, they, how they make money. Um, and you get to help them. It's really cool. Um, Matt, can you give me a background, a bit of background? You mentioned before you're now working in a family business. Can you give me a bit of background on that? Yeah, well, so Inspire is the kind of the business I work in in the broader Insight group, which is a sustainability-focused organization. And basically, our goal is to save one gigaton of CO2 emissions by 2035 annually. And so we're basically pulling out all the stops to try and make that possible. And where I fit in is in I have the background in software development and and also in hardware manufacturing for electronic controls and that type of thing. And so what we do is we create energy modeling software and energy control devices. It's mainly energy, but we also do water. And it's around how do we actually help people reduce their energy consumption or, or, or actually see what's going on. Um, and so, yeah, we, we have software, we have hardware products, and it's kind of... It's it's still in early stages, and it's but it's also been going along on for a long time. The original version of the software was done in the late nineties, and so right now it's twenty twenty. It's almost thirty years, I'd say, since uh, the the foundations of what we do were set. Mm. Uh, although doing it in new technologies, which is always the thing with with uh, software or hardware, is that as things change, you've got to continually be innovating. Otherwise, your product kind of degrades over time um and so yeah that's what that's what we do energy design and modeling and control stuff and can you give me a bit of an example on that so it's not it's not for just i i'm well i know but it's not for just small businesses it's for businesses uh what sort of size are the businesses or clients that you guys are working with yeah well basically i'd like to say any size businesses but in reality often it doesn't make um, financial sense for really small businesses. So normally it's, we're talking about mines or government organizations or normal, I'd say businesses that have energy use over a million dollars a year. So yeah. that kind of, and I think as we, as we move on in time, we want to be able to offer it to smaller and smaller businesses. So the goal in the, uh, a long way down the track would be that any homeowner could use the software to model their house energy use and identify their own energy savings that way. Um, Cause otherwise it, a lot of energy savings to end consumers like us are pretty inaccessible unless you've got the know-how. And so we can kind of put a lot of that stuff into the software so that it's not, you don't have to know, you can actually kind of discover instead. Yeah, that's cool. And Matt, the reason I wanted to chat to you a bit more today on software development was the unique position that Inspire is in, and that is having a fully distributed workforce. So I wanted to chat to you a little bit about that and understand why have you chosen to have software developers working with you from all over the world rather than setting up a, an office or a hub in Australia or somewhere like that? Yeah, I think like a lot of things it's easy to look back and kind of make meaning or make it up. But the reality is that it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. I, I was previously running a team of local developers, like all working with me. 
and then there was this new opportunity to work with to develop the Inspire business and start working on software. And I basically called the people I was like, who I think could make a big difference or would be interested in this type of work. And I said, hey, like, and, and Nicholas, who's now our engineering manager, I, I called him and I said, hey, I, I've got this project. I think you might like it. We should have a chat. And we met up. He was in Brisbane at the time. And in the chat, he said, oh, I'm moving to Cyprus later this year. Like, I'm moving over to the other side of the world. And it was a case of, oh, well, I'd still love you to be involved if you're willing and just like, and let's see what we can do. And then with having good people, I think good people are good wherever they are. And it's just a case of enabling people to do their best work wherever they are. And then when we hire now, we're not hire. We, we hire, if we are, if we do hire for locations, it's more for time zones. So for example, having people, we have people in Europe and Asia, but we don't really have people in the American time zone because the American time zones totally don't align with the Australian and the European. So you're, you, you can either have two, but you can't have the three time zones line up. I like that you sort of say you can pick two, uh, but you can't have all three. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, I, I there's three agree, major but... time zones. Yeah, yeah. There's like Asia, Pacific, the US and Europe. Mm. And, and Europe includes Africa because that's where we have staff as well. Yeah. And so we, we've chosen Asia Pacific yeah. and the European time zones. And yeah. it works way better because trying to support people in U, the US means that it's either only Europe or only Australia, but never all three of us. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, I've learned that from doing a little bit of work with clients in the States. The time zones yeah. aren't that friendly. Uh, one person always has to end up sort of working out of hours for those calls. Um, yeah, yeah. And, or traditional, and a lot of our team house. is in Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of our teams in Africa and so they come online at 3 p.m., which is actually really good for me because I get a lot of the morning to just do my own focus work and then everyone starts on their day 3 p.m. my time and I've already got most of what I'm trying to get done done for the day and I can now then do meetings at the end of the day, which is a different way of looking at meetings, I think, as opposed to put them all first in the morning, which is, I think, what a lot of people do. Yeah, definitely. And it's it, that's probably much more of a consistent thing that I see is, is people like to sort of front load their day. Um, yes. How, how did definitely. you have to change your routine to, to work around that or did that come quite naturally? It just seemed to be the obvious thing to do. I, I start my day at normal hours and normally work like nine till five, but often I might start maybe at 11 or 12 and work till eight or nine. And so it's just, for me, it's like, this is the benefit of, of working remotely, of, of having people in different time zones, that there is more flexibility to live the life I want. So if I want to go out like tomorrow morning, I'll go and play squash with a friend in the morning and then um, go and see one of my coaches or whatever, and then start work. And yeah. I'll still do a full day, but it just, I just have time during when everyone else is working. And for me, it's great. Like, I love it. And, and working a bit later into the evening, t- totally fine for me. Mm. And I think, um, having flexibility about when people work is important, particularly with remote team members. Like we've got say team members in Nepal and Vietnam. So they're similar to my time zone, but I don't really, like no one keeps track of when they're working. We just mm. know what the objectives are. And as a business, we're working towards those objectives. And ultimately, 
if um, if they're able to get that objective done really well and it takes them only like two hours, yes, I would love them to work the whole day, but really I'm I'm out after the result rather than the time. Yeah. And so it's it's this case of trusting people, I think. I think with remote teams, you just have to trust people a lot more too. Mm. And I mean, trust is one of those things that it's, well, to me, it seems easy when um, you can meet in person and you can, you can you know, stare at someone sort of in the flesh and, and chat to them and learn more about them. How do you develop that uh, remotely? Or how have you found to develop that remotely? Yeah, trust is a funny one. Uh, it's, it's probably like with you with clients, how do you build trust? You kind of, you share with them, you work out whether you've got aligned values, whether you get along. And it, it, it's a lot of the similar stuff, but I think there's some things you can do to really provoke trust in others, particularly remotely. And one of those things is to be upfront and kind of really declare your motives. Mm. So one of the examples is if I'm giving feedback, I'll often say like, why am I giving this feedback? Like, because I want this outcome or I want you to um, level up in this area or because I'm concerned about something or being like, I have to disclose a little bit more about my thinking process when I'm giving feedback or when I'm communicating because otherwise people are kind of left in the dark a bit. I don't know. How do do you find it working with clients that where they're not, when you're not able to be with them in the room? I know that was the case with us. Like we've Mm. got, you you work with us and we've got team members all over the place. How did you find it? Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, but I think you have to respect the process of, the video conference calls, um, you know, it was great with you guys because you guys had some really cool things set up um, as sort of protocols or, or processes, you know, where we would we would check in, um, you know, and make a conscious effort to sort of check in uh, from more of a social um, and an emotional sort of level rather than just jumping straight into the business side or jumping straight into the agenda, but to go around the room or go around the, the meeting um, and getting all people to sort of, uh, introduce themselves and and just sort of voice what they were um, or vocalize what they were looking to get out of the meeting, what they were excited about, how they were feeling, you know, potentially something they were grateful for. But just giving everyone a chance to uh, be heard um, and mm-hmm. also, um, I guess, uh, make sure that they they felt like they were being listened to um, and also that they had a voice or a, a, a you know the ability to share. Um, in that meeting so there was no passengers everyone felt like an active participant I thought that was a really good way um, to sort of make sure that everyone who was involved um, and that's something that you you know I've always had a a lesson with my team or I've always tried to stress with my team is if you're in a meeting if you're being brought to a meeting a workshop or something like that you know you're meant to be there so you know think about how you can contribute or otherwise if you're silent the whole time um people are going to be sort of wondering, you know, what, what's this person doing here? So try to find a great question or try to think of a great question or a way to contribute um, because otherwise, yeah, you, you, you yeah. will sort of leave feeling like, oh, I didn't really get anything out of it. I think that's one of the important things about remote meetings particularly is that being present isn't enough. Like you just, if you're there on the screen, for example, you, you really need to speak up and mm. contribute or, or ask a question like, but it's not like this thing about don't fake it. I, I wouldn't say like fake interest. It's like what I <laughs> yeah. sometimes say in the start of meetings is, hey, everyone, we're, we're, we're here for a meeting. We're going to be here for an hour. Can everyone just take a moment and 
see if you can get excited about this meeting, like get, like kind of warm, I, I use the word warm yourself up to being here together. Mm. And can, can you sort of shift your, your mood from whatever it was before to now being part of something? And if you're able to like warm yourself up or get interested, which you can do, like you, you can do that, then y- you enter the meeting with people actually wanting to be there or at least like a- wanting to be there enough to contribute. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, because otherwise it, it just like y- you can really lose the the connection between people. Um, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the technology setup that you that you have for um, you know distributed teams. But before I do that, I want to know, you know, you've worked in environments where it is lo- all local, and now you're working in an environment where it's um, you know the team are distributed across the world. What are the differences? The so many differences. I think the the biggest thing is that if you're working with someone locally. If they're having a bad day, you'll know about it. Like they're like people come in, they're slouching, they're kind of angry or whatever. Whereas people can kind of uh, pretend online better in a way that they can't, mm. they can kind of hide how they're actually going. So we really have to make an effort or I really get us to make an effort to really make sure to check in with people how they're actually going. And, and if they've got problems, make sure they actually have space to air them. Yeah. Um, because if, if, if I do something that annoys someone, which is very possible, because in leadership positions, I'm, I'm sure I'm always doing things that annoy some people in some way. And, <laughs> but in, in person, people will talk to other people and sort of gossip about it. Or like you need, you need to give people the ability to express themselves. And I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. And the other thing is communication skills. If you're all working together in an office, you can often get away with not being a great communicator because you're you're going to just be there and you're just going to get it. Mm. Whereas there has to be a lot more emphasis on everyone has to speak up. We need to make sure that everyone hears what's going on and everyone is actually connected with the the same mission. Um, if you think about like software projects, for example, often there's a thousand ways to get to the solution or the solution may mean a bunch of different things to a bunch of people. And because trying to define requirements in words is really complicated. Um, if people aren't willing to speak up and re-clarify things, sometimes a number of times, you can end up building the complete wrong product. Like I remember a few years ago, I was on a team and we were building out like a platform for HR management tools. And it was supposed to be for like managing assessments of applicants for different psychometric assessments. And we'd done the first version of the product and uh, like I was the one who was responsible for overseeing it, but I'd handed it off to someone and I was like, oh, they've got it. And when they delivered it to me, it was like the completely wrong product. Like it <laughs> technically like it did the right things, but it was completely wrong. Like it was literally like they built a bus instead of a boat. And it was like, <laughs> like in theory, they could both get to the same place, but it was just like completely wrong. So it's a case of like, how do you actually know you're talking about the right thing? And that's probably the hardest thing with remote. And so mm. the way we do that is a lot of writing. Like you, you need to be able to write. You need to be able to communicate. 
Uh, and that goes for everyone in the team. So everyone in our team from the junior developers all the way to the architects or the like the senior, most senior people, everyone needs to be able to write and communicate their ideas in written language so mm. that others can understand them. Um, and is that is that like through a Slack message or are you asking people to sort of fill in a, a document and, and share quite a long form document of their of what they're looking to build or what their objectives are? For, mo- for most of the actual, like, what are we building, it's all long form. So if you've got a proposal about an idea about the feature we're building or the way you want to do something or a change you want to make, we'll always ask you to do a long form. Yeah. Um, because, and, and there's one thing we always make sure you include in long form, which is what are the constraints you're working with? Because mm. it's really easy to come up with great solutions if you've got un- unlimited budget and un- unlimited time. Yeah. So if if someone has this rights proposal is like, oh, I've got this idea, we should do this. And then they don't include a thing about how much time they're proposing. Yeah. It could literally be like, yes, if we had to spend a whole year rebuilding the entire system, we could do this. Yeah. Whereas like if you say, I've got, I'm thinking about this as like a maximum two week, I have an appetite of two weeks to build this. What can we actually do in two weeks? And, and limitations are critical, mm. particularly for software. But I'm assuming it's similar to you guys. Like if, if someone comes to you and wants a, wants a brand in a, a week, it's a very different type of constraint to, well, it can be done over the next three months, for example, I reckon. Yeah, completely. I think constraints are great uh, at getting, you know, helping, helping you become more creative um, and, you know, helps you sort of innovate or provide sometimes an innovative solution to it. The constraints have to allow for a certain result. You know, it's, um, you're not going to get someone to sort of paint the Mona Lisa or the Sistine Chapel in an afternoon. Um, you know, you've yeah, got to yeah, give them totally. enough time uh, for, the, for the requirements. But, um, but that being said, like, I, think, I think that pressure of a time frame uh, actually helps the result because you, um, you iterate quicker. Um, and you sort of- well, I think the way I like to think of it, like there was an example I was working on last a few weeks ago, which was a, a notification system. So this is like notifying you if your energy use is too high or something's not working the way it should be. And we were like, okay, we've got two weeks. Like I literally said maybe three weeks or two weeks to build this thing. So in that time, we're not going to do SMS. Like we just don't have time to do it. We can do email. We can do um, something else. But it's like, we can't do everything. We mm. like what's the minimum we can do? Like what's the minimum we can actually do and deliver in this two weeks? Yeah, and that really helps define the scope. As opposed to if you ask the question, "What do you want?" Like to the clients, "Oh, what do you want?" Well, we want it to do everything. Well, it's yeah. like yes. Well, we can do everything, but it's not going to be done in two weeks. That's a four-month project or whatever. And so it's like it's trying to be pragmatic about what do you want versus what do you need mm. and what's minimum that's going to actually satisfy the requirement. Um, and part of that is, is being kind of direct and kind of, I almost say mean, like it's like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to give you what you want, but what about this? Yeah. Like, and, and really trying to be argue back because it's, it's in the benefit of the product that the scope is defined and, and kind of, as small as possible um, because you can always add to it later, but it's much harder to, if you've already started on this big scope to then try and reduce it later is much, much harder than to have it 
because it's always going to get bigger. It's not going to get smaller. Mm. Guaranteed. Yeah, that's a good point. So, Matt, give me a background into the technology setup. So, to, to manage that team um, and to work with that team, um, what sort of programs are you guys using? Yeah, well, I, I always like pushing back on this question because <laughs> um, I think everyone loves to focus on tech sucks. It's like the, all the, the videos like, oh, the cool apps that have come out this week. And I'll, I'll, I'll cover it in a sec, but I think it's always important to know what the, the methodology is and how you're like how are you working? Because that is more important, I think, than the tools. And we actually change tools very frequently. So I'll say what we're doing now, but we've actually just changed. So we, for example, we were using Trello for tasks up until recently. Mm-hmm. And then we've moved to Jira because we had change in requirements and we, we wanted something else. And I think the, the flexibility around tools is if you know what the tr- problem you're trying to solve is, the right tool will appear and you can always assess tools based on what are you actually using them for as opposed to just like how cool they are. But in, in saying all that, we're using, we use Slack for chat, Jira for tasks and Confluence for written documents and also Google Docs, obviously. And with all of that, we're, we're currently experimenting with using the Basecamp shape up model for project management. And that's really this more constraints based uh, design philosophy around really making sure that you know what the constraints are before you get started on stuff um, and, and doing a lot of writing up front as well. Yeah, it's cool. So Thanks yeah, those are that. the tools. And, and I think you're, you're pretty similar, right? Like are you, are you still with Slack or are you Basecamp or like what are you using? Uh, yeah, we use, we just use Slack, uh, email, Google Docs, um, sort of the whole G Suite for, for email, Docs, Sheets, that sort of thing. Um, mm. And then we're, we're playing with Notion as um as oh, sort of a project yes. management tool which um which the team really like and I'm getting better at getting on there. I'm not a um I'm not a very good person with systems and processes. I'm yeah, I sort of default to email and uh and Slack a lot. Um Yeah, I I also think like a lot like in in say our team almost everyone has their own personal management system as well. Mm. So like for me I have things like things 3 which is a Mac app and a phone app and stuff. And I use that for all my personal tasks. So if someone asks me to do something, I'm not going to put it in Jira unless it's related to the project. Yeah. But I'll like, so, and then all my personal notes are in Evernote, whereas all my like, and, and that like, that'll also be about work. So there's kind of like, most of us have our own personal tools. And like, I know some people use Todoist. I use Things 3. I used to use OmniFocus. It's like, we all have our own, like there's the company stuff and there's also the personal stuff because um, th- there's this kind of philosophy with getting things done or any of these sort of productivity tool system things, which is that if your head is full of all the things that you need to do and then it's not in the system that you trust to remember it for you, your brain has to do all the remembering constantly for you and keep reminding you of all the things you've forgotten to remember. Yeah. And so if you can externalize that, it just like frees you up massively um, and, and, and that's what I think if everyone had that, it, it really benefits everyone in the team. Cause that, that way I can trust that you're going to do it because I know you've written it down somewhere and I know yeah. that you're not going to forget it yeah. basically. Um, it's interesting with bringing on new tools. Like I've, I've been in plenty of environments where we've 
you know, previous agencies where we go, oh, okay, cool, we're going to get this new project management tool. Yeah, we, yeah. And, and if people are forced to do the training and things like that. And there's always, there's always some people who will happily go into it and it's probably based on personality types and things like that. There's people who happily go, yep, this is what we're doing as a company, well, I'll follow the steps and I'll do it. And there are people who are, you know, who, who resist um, and, and sort, of, uh, sort of drag their feet along. Um, and I think it's important to, like you said before, understand the problems or understand the, I guess the bigger picture of what, what the tools are going to solve um, and, and focus on that rather than the actual, you know, tool element or, you know, what, what you're actually doing the, the individual tasks because, yeah, it's, it's easy to throw software at a, at a problem but really is, you know, is that going to solve it for that type of person? You know, you might need to totally. sell, sell the greater vision of what this is going to allow for. Yeah, and I also think that the reality is most people don't need any tools. Like we could do all the stuff we do with Jira. It would be harder in Google Docs, for example. Mm. But it's this thing of like using new project management tools is fun. Like I, well, for me, I get some sort of a kick out of using new project management tools. So it's like if I notice I see a new tool and I'm like, oh, yes, we should totally use that. It's probably worth me not doing that and pushing back on it because otherwise... (laughs) It's so easy to just burn time and like there's this joke in the productivity uh, world that I'm sort of peripherally part of, which is like we probably spend more time thinking about productivity than actually doing the productivity stuff. (laughs) So it's like I've got to be conscious of like am I doing this for fun or am I doing this because it's actually more productive? Um, yeah, yeah. And is it's, this, it's a trap. Is this, is this productivity tool uh, just an effort of sort of procrastinating, <laughs> putting off, yeah, putting yeah, off actually totally. doing work? Yeah. No, but, but totally, like, without doubt, there's so many people in business, like, they're like, oh, this tool will save the day. Like, mm. if we have this tool, we'll be organized. Yeah. And it's, like, not the case. Like, just it, 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 people are the problem. Yeah. And the tools are, like, a way to make that work better like people who manage their work through email that can work really great or it can be a complete disaster mm. but it's not email's fault like email's just is just there yeah um but when you say you manage things through email i shudder slightly because i'm like <laughs> i don't know how you remember everything like gosh that sounds terrifying yeah there's a there's a lot i'm relying on um remembering there and uh yeah, yeah hoping, see, hoping yeah. that i don't drop one of those balls yeah, see, see that remembering game, that's tiring. Like, uh, like when I have to remember stuff, it's a horrible experience. <laughs> um, uh, uh, like, we should, uh, like, productivity, Dan. Yeah. Get onto it, I reckon. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying new systems. I'm, I'm getting through it. Um, <laughs> I feel like I've been put under the microscope here with my... No, uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I remain unconvinced, but go, go on. Like, we can continue. Okay, we should have a... Uh, we'll talk to this... Uh, I'll... Uh, I've got some recommendations about this later, which I might mention. So yeah, we'll cool. see if we get to that. Um, well, Matt, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about um, about managing a team and working with software developers, and then I want to yeah. chat a bit more about um, about your personal life. But um, but first, when you're hiring for new software developers, what sort of skills are you looking for, or what are you looking for? Well, obviously, it's like there's there's technical skills. Like if you're I'm hiring a designer, they need to be able to design things that I think look good. Um, or a software developer should be able to write good code. And on top of the technical skills, the most important thing is communication. Can they communicate their ideas clearly in writing? 
can they write a document that explains a, a, some sort of complicated concept and or idea about a solution and other people can understand it and then action that. So one of the things we'll do is after they've passed a technical interview, often we'll, we'll say, hey, watch this, um, this presentation online from some like conference, like some software conference, and then can you explain the concept that you learned in that talk in, in writing to us? Yeah. And in your own words. And then like we normally will put that on Slack and a bunch of people will, will read it and make an assessment about whether they can understand the, the topic without watching the video and whether we think it's expressed in a way that makes sense. And a lot of the time people will get through the technical stuff, but like they just can't explain concepts in a mm. way that makes sense to others. Um, and That's really cool. I, I'm going I'm to steal that for, uh, for when we hire designers because, um, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we, get, we can often get, um, you know, in, when hiring designers, what will happen is you'll, you'll put a job ad out and someone will submit their portfolio. Um, and, you know, if it's really good, you'll get them in and you'll chat to them and they'll take you through the portfolio and they'll explain things. But one thing that's lacking is there's often never, you know, like what you were talking about before, there's no constraints around that. So if, if it's a student showing their graduate portfolio, um, mm. you, know, you might look at the work and go, wow, this is incredible. This is really cool. But you have no idea how long it took them. You know, it could have taken them six months. It could have taken them 12 months for one piece. Um, yes, you know, there's, totally. no, there's no budget constraints because it's a, sort of a made-up brand. Um, and then you know, they could write a cover letter. And you can normally, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's easy to write a good cover letter. But if you do a little bit of research, it's not hard to stand out and be, be you know, pretty good on, a, on half a page or a page if you research mm. the company and you can say the right things. Um, but then getting someone to do almost a, uh, you know, a, a test of communication and a test of um, insight or, you know, understanding and sort of um, of a concept and being able to actually explain that concept. I think that's brilliant. Well, yeah, like, and, and the way we do it is often these are talks by like really well-known people in the space that we work in. And the the talks are so interesting that people actually enjoy watching them. So it's like, here, watch this 20 minute talk. And then can you explain the core message or what, what your takeaways were from that mm. in a way that we can gather without having watched the talk yeah. and like it works well. I highly recommend it. And where did, and you, I get think that? The other where did you get that idea from? Oh, I saw that from one of my senior guys, Ollie. Um, yeah. Ollie has this idea, had this idea and he's been doing it for ages and, it works so well um, because it's also you can so transparently see the thinking process in mm. writing like that. Yeah. Um, and ideally we say basically it's not formal. Like we don't say formally write a thing. It's just like, hey, can you watch this talk? Like we'll normally email them after the interview and say, hey, can you watch this talk? And can you let us know what, you, what your key takeaway was? Yeah. And, and just writing what they, seeing what they write back is like, and we might ask them some more questions or like, it's not, we don't formally say, please present us back with the thing. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. um, it's kind of trying to get a sense of how they communicate in a written way because often, particularly being remote, they, they need to be able to do that because that's, mm. their, like, that's part of the job um, of being remote. Definitely. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think that. the other thing with remote people is, or hiring new people is, we want managers of one. We don't want like no... My team, no one in my team wants more people to manage. We yeah. want people who can like get the problem, sort it out and manage themselves to get to their solution. Mm. 
yeah. managers of one, which I think like you've got Ruben on your team. I think he's a manager of one, like obviously you're a manager of one and you're the manager as well. So like, yeah, I think and, uh, that, Orion, Orion yeah. is the same, you know, very, very, uh, that's something I look forward um, <laughs> just because um, I don't think adding lots and lots of people um, and spending your whole time doing that, you know, managing, looking over their shoulder is, um, is efficient. Do you call it, do you have another name for it? Mine's, I'm using manager of one here, but is there another way that you talk about it? No, I mean, I grew up, um, I grew up, I, my, my previous job, um, I had a great boss, I had a great leader and he, he often talked about, he didn't want to create, um, or he didn't want a team of employees. He wanted a team of leaders. Um, yeah. and he, he sort of measured himself on how many leaders he could bring through the ranks, um, and I really learned a lot from that. Um, and it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity. And I think that's, um, it's a nice way to look at it when you, when you are hiring people is do they have the ability to lead? Um, you know, and it can, they don't have to lead a full team. It could be just, you know, one or two people or it could be them. And people play a role, you know, like at work, they may not need to be a leader in a certain environment, but can they lead outside of work? Can they lead a group of friends? Um, that sort of thing. Like, do they have that ability? Can they lead a client? Um, so, so yeah, that's sort of how I think it doesn't even have to be leadership. Like, like for example, it's about being a confident human in yeah. in the context of the work. Like, we've got this junior developer on our team who is starting to. I've been working with him for a bit about can he speak up and really like lead us in our little meetings. Mm. And it's amazing to see how he's progressing with that. Like really stepping up to the challenge. And I think it's around, even if they don't have that leadership thing yet, but if they have a, a an openness to learning and an openness to growth, I think that's probably the, the one of the key things, which I think is what you're talking about is that openness stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and like what you said there, that confidence uh, in themselves um, to have that voice, I think that's really important. Um, on that, you do a you do a fair bit of teamwork building um, with some high profile brands. And can you tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing with Autodesk? Yeah, so I, I do this through another organization um, called V Teamwork. And the way I got involved with that was I, I did their program as like a senior person in the software world a number of years ago, and I just sort of stayed on it and sort of developed into a coach in their program. And basically what we do is we train people in how to be effective members of teams. So basically exactly what we were just talking about. How do you actually do that? What does that look like? And basically it's things like how do you make effective requests of people and how do you make offers of if someone needs something done, how do you make an offer that's valuable to them and how do you share what your opinions are on things and all that sort of stuff. And the way we do it is through virtual reality simulated environments. So in this case, <laughs> we're, we're using Minecraft. So basically we get all these like maybe software engineers or doctors or whoever we're working with. And in the Autodesk case, it's, it's um, engineers and we'll all be in Minecraft together. And there's like this Minecraft adventure that we're going on and we'll, we directly, support and coach the someone who's like leading the team at that for that few minutes and they kind of take turns leading and the what it's doing is actually providing embodied competence so it's not just like not standard learning is you go to a conference or something you get given a presentation and then you it's like okay now go and apply it 
Mm. And that's kind of pretty ineffective learning. Whereas this is like, this is the concept and now we're going to actually put it into practice. And so let's say someone's working on making giving assessments to their teammates on how they're performing. Yeah. And so let's say we're working on that. In Minecraft, they're, they're doing the thing and, and I might say to the person leading, hey, what do you think of, like, can you give Suzanne an assessment of how she's going over there? And they have a go and then, and then, and then I'll say, do you, think, do you think Suzanne heard you? Like, do you, think she, do you think she really got that? And they might say, oh, no, I think... Uh, I don't think she's got it yet. I'm like, oh, well, have another go. And and be, being really open to uh, like having additional tries and you can learn in a and practice in a really low stakes environment because it's only World of Warcraft, sorry, Minecraft. We also do World of Warcraft or used to. Yeah. And so it's like these low stakes environments where people can take risks and really learn how to communicate and be a leader basically or be mm. a really good member of a team. Um in in a fun environment and the thing is it's so fun uh that it's like it doesn't feel like work which is also it's also very immersive because if you think of like say business or when you're working you you can't you can get so into the job that you miss the context of am i how is my communication what what like am i providing uh a good mood for the team. It's like you can get very stuck in we're trying to get this job done. Mm. And the same thing happens in the virtual space. And so it's like it's such a good replica of everyday life, uh, yeah. except it, it's a lot less risky. So it's fantastic and it's so much fun and uh, and I, I get to see so many different people and see them develop so quickly over such a short period of time that um, it's – it's just something I've stuck with. And all of my senior leaders have done it, almost all of them. And it's just like we use the skills every day. So it's kind of like a case of it's so valuable to me. I wanted to coach in it so that I can get really good at it mm. um, and, and offer it to my team because I think that's how effective teams work and teams that people actually want to be part of um, as well. I like that, I like that um, education piece or that – like learn as you go and develop as you go. You know, I liken it to, um, you know, like golf. So like if you had a golf coach, you can have a golf coach that goes to the driving range and, you know, coaches you as you hit just lots and lots of balls from one space. Um, But you could get the same coach to actually go out on the course with you and play 18 holes of golf with you and coach you as you're going. Um, And, you know, that's again a very different thing to you. You go to a conference about golf and they teach you that you look at, 200 slides about how to play golf <laughs> that's right and watch watch so, lots of youtube videos or something like that which apparently is quite high uh quite effective for, for golf tutorials as well but yeah well well it's a, it's, pro- it's probably effective to learn the concepts but to actually like you're not going to become a world-class golfer from watching youtube videos on how to play golf i'm mm. pretty sure like yeah. at least that's my experience of learning <laughs> so so it's basically like how do you learn teamwork skills and how do you learn how to be a really valuable member of a team without having to spend years just suffering through it mm. um, at, at work and making all the mistakes? So here you can make really terrible mistakes and that happens, but it's no risk. So you can like, you can actually internalize the learning. It's like you want to train with your golf coach when you're not in a competition. Yeah. Otherwise, like you want to do the learning in a safe place. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Um, so, and, and how long are these people 
you know doing these games and and things like that like is it is it a long course or is it you know oh yeah so so these courses are it's about 10 weeks or eight weeks it depends on exactly the format but basically it's like every week it's a in-game session for a few hours and then um there's some individual coaching outside of that but primarily it's it's a bit of content like that's learnt beforehand and then in-game practice of, of of some of those skills but it's not like um like the best learning is interleaved, which is means like it's it, it's it's there's lots of different things being learned at once. So it's not like we're just going to focus on this. Yeah. It's like where where every week we're adding something to the like the repertoire. But in in all the sessions, everyone's expected to be actively practicing the whole repertoire as opposed to just what the focus is this week. Yeah. Um, so it's like gradually learning those skills and. Um, and one of the biggest things in that, which we talked about earlier about online, being online is about speaking up. Mm. How do you um, get people to speak up and encourage that? And, uh, and it's also about meetings. Like um, I remember some, uh, some teams I've worked with, some of, they come in often saying, this is an order desk necessarily, but just people in general, they'll come in saying, I have so many meetings. I really don't like meetings. Mm. And, but the reality of their job is that they are in lots of meetings. And so how do they actually be effective in meetings? And no one, most people haven't been taught how to be effective in meetings. But when you're actually effective in meetings, you can have fewer of them and you can actually get a lot done in them. And so it's this kind of paradox of like, I don't like meetings, so I'm going to try and avoid them as opposed to how do you make the best use of them and make them awesome. Yeah. And that's what we often do in the in the workshop as well or in these programs is really help people shift their perspective on the work that they're doing in their job. Mm. Something I read years ago um, and I think Google were doing, investing a hell of a lot of money into high performing teams and you probably know this work as well, but one of the things that they found in common, um, they couldn't, they couldn't find like the ideal profile or group of people. They couldn't do it on like psychographics or demographics. What they could do is it was just you know, high-performing teams were teams with sort of an equal level of con- uh, contribu- uh, sorry, contribution. So having meetings mm. where you go around the room and, and everyone feels like they've got a, uh, a time to share their thoughts or their, their feedback on it. Um, how do, is that something that you try to do in meetings? Yeah, I wouldn't say equal necessarily. It's more like what's the purpose here and, mm. and is everyone aligned with the purpose of the meeting yeah. or the purpose of the this team being in existence. And I think if you're clear on the purpose, it really makes actually achieving the outcome a lot better. And, um, and, and ideally everyone's voice is heard in that, but it's also, if someone's unhappy, they need to say something. And like, it's not like, I think we all want to, well, that's probably a massive overgeneralization, but certainly I want everyone in my team to feel confident to speak up if they've got a problem or they think there's, we can do things better or they're frustrated or whatever. Like speaking up and being honest is what I think a lot of life is about in general. And so mm. I don't think we should be like, oh, we're really honest in our personal lives and then we come to work and we're like, uh, we don't actually let people know what we think about stuff. Mm. Um, and do, you th- do you think meetings, the way meetings are set up, uh, favors a certain type of personality? Like it favors someone who's a bit more of an extrovert who can think quickly on their feet, who who's happy to sort of, 
say something and be wrong. Whereas someone who's maybe more introverted or more analytical and likes to take time to think about a response and, and think about, you know, they, they want to make sure that when they, when they do say something, it's a really calculated response. So they may choose to withhold that and, and sort of email that through after or come back after. Like, yeah, I, I sort of feel like sometimes meetings just favor the loudest people. Yeah, and I think that's because the meetings are set up wrong. Uh, mm. Like, I think the way that a good meeting is done is that before the meeting, there is a one pager or like at least a, a decent document that outlines the purpose of the meeting. The like, it's like I've got this problem, or this meeting is about solving this problem, and here's what we've done, or here's my thinking about this, and this is the context, and this is everything, and so that everyone can read that before they come to the meeting. And so when you get to the meeting, people have had time to consider it deeply mm. as opposed to often meetings are like you get the title of the meeting in the, in the calendar invite, for example, and everyone's turning up basically completely blind. <laughs> and then you get everyone's first impressions on it, on this topic, which are probably not the best. Yeah. And so uh, like I'll often say like if, if something new comes up in a meeting I'm in, I'm often be like, well, someone needs to do some writing on this and then we'll come back to it. Like, yeah. and so who's, and, and who's going to, who's going to take this on and someone will go, Oh, I'll do it. And then they'll write up the problem and their thoughts about the solution. And then they'll send it out and then they'll get comments and then they'll host the meeting. Yeah. So I love that. it's kind of like, I think just writing, this is like the key of writing in business is I think massively overlooked. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think meeting agendas are, you know, it's such a cop out sometimes. It's just sort of like a wish list or a bullet point list of, of things that we may talk about, we may get to. Um, but I love what you say about having, you know, defining the problem for a meeting. You know, what is this meeting about? What's the purpose? And actually writing to it and giving everyone, you know, enough time to sort of process that and come to that meeting prepared. Um, I think you, yeah, cause, you cause avoid I think just the thing that is wastage. Like, yeah, because what, and it's also when is this meeting done? Mm. Like, like, is the meeting done when everyone is, <laughs> Like when, when the time goes yeah. or is having, it, like, having is closure there, on it. Yeah. And, and so for me, my view is that the meeting, like sh there should be a done when on the meeting, which is like, um, when the meet, when this criteria is met, the meeting is complete. Yeah. Um, and I think that's makes such a big difference. Mm. Yeah. I like that. Do you have a, um, uh, do you have like a meeting template like not an agenda template, but do you have like a, yeah, like a briefing template sort of thing for meetings? We do, we do. Basically, it's just like, it, it's very simple. It will just have like the title. It'll have what's the problem that's trying to be solved. What's the, uh, what's the thing, what's the work that's been done already on this? Mm -hmm. What are the constraints that we need to work in? Like this solution is needed now or like what's the context? Yeah. Like where does this exist in? And then, um, what are the like basically what's the recommendation if this person has a recommendation and then sometimes most of the time actually things you don't even need a meeting because when someone actually puts their thoughts down and then they circulate it everyone's like yep we all agree done like <laughs> we don't we don't need a meeting about this yeah um that's so, great uh, i like that i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna borrow that yeah, I really suggest it's like don't have a meeting unless you've actually written about it first, mm. unless it's a social meeting. So we have a few social meetings a week where we literally schedule in the calendar and it's like just team check-in. Like we all just have a chat and we share what happened on a weekend or whatever and it's like it's a time to socialize and it's yeah. not about 
and we might say something about work, but that's not the purpose. Mm. And so I think if you have social meetings, that's fine, but don't get them confused with a meeting about with a particular intent or a particular outcome, I reckon. Yeah, yeah that's cool. And finally on teamwork and sort of managing teams, what are some practical things that all managers or leaders could do to improve productivity and also engagement in their businesses? I think I think the ones we've talked about so far, like having an agenda for, like having an actually written document for a meeting, not just an agenda, is really important. Doing more writing, those type of things. The other thing is, I think a lot of leaders can do a lot better with providing grounding for assessments. So what do I mean by that? It's like when I give you an opinion, let's say for example, you've done some design work for us or whatever, and I say I don't like it, like that's not very helpful. And it doesn't tell you why, it doesn't tell you my thinking, it doesn't tell you anything. It's like, I'm not a fan of this and this is the reasons why, or mm. I don't think this, this solution is going to work and here's my grounding, here's my evidence, here's my thinking about that. And presenting that as opposed to keeping it hidden, um, yeah. I think is something that can really uh, make people a lot more productive because if you know why or the, the background of stuff, you can often make better assessments of how to improve things. The other thing is around productivity is trying to solve the problem once and well, as opposed to doing it multiple times. And this is particularly common in software where we will build a solution and then through building the solution, we realize a lot of things and they end up even needing to rewrite the whole thing. And yeah. if we had spent more time up front thinking about things in advance, we can often reduce rework and reduce having to redo things. Yeah. And it's that's probably one of the key things around productivity in general is the, if you can spend a bit of time working, uh, thinking about the problem, then when you actually go to work on the problem, you'll ha- probably end up with a better solution. Um, and we then often, I think having... Yeah, we often say gone, like defining the problem is often half, like is often most the solution. You know, if you, when, when you actually take time to define what the problem is, what you're trying to solve, uh, the solution often, you know, um, presents itself. Whereas sometimes when you, I don't know, sometimes there's the temptation to just dive in and just feel like you're, you're being busy. You know, you, you're doing stuff, you're being active. You're like, oh, surely I'm, I'm working towards a solution. But that's where I think you're saying that, you know, like by, by jumping sort of to execution, you often you often then work out that, hey, we needed to take a step back and actually um, you know, spend some more time actually defining what the problem is. Yeah, totally. And I think writing, it seems to be my theme is writing at the moment, but like, and actually putting it down into words forces mm. clarity. If, yeah. you, if you have to write it, it, it really creates an opportunity for you to think about your thinking differently. Um, and I think, yeah, writing you can't go wrong with writing um the the other thing is and 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 this is probably advice for you directly which would be use a productivity framework (laughs) and like like getting things done i think is probably the most common example but like nuts get don't use your brain as a back as as a storage for all the things that you need to do Mm. um and so is that actually an app getting things done is an app that i could use no, it's it's a, it's a book by David Allen from the uh, early two thousands, and um, it's it's become like the foundation of the entire productivity movement, like which is this big thing. Um, and then once you've mastered getting things done, there's another sort of framework called 
building a second brain or having a second brain, mm. which is basically a way of taking notes and taking records of things so that like when you face the same problem again or you face a similar question or you have you want to create something new um you have all your previous notes and thoughts and ideas about this about whatever it is as opposed to having to start from scratch again so it's like for and, and this would be like um in getting things done i'd have all these are all the projects of things i'm working on at the moment and one of those for me would be for example i've got to design this compliance solution for for the software team and i've got to have that document done this week so i've got a project in my in my getting things done system in things which is like which is that project that i also have it in my evernote and if i'm now that i'm kind of aware i'm working on this if I see something about compliance, I just save it into that folder. And then over time, like, and I might actually not be doing anything actively with it. I'm just collecting stuff. And Mm. then when I actually go to do it, I've got all these resources on compliance stuff that I can just pull from and create something much more effectively. So I'm kind of starting from like step five instead of step one every time. So, and because I've been doing this for so long, I've got, if you were like, oh, can I have, I'm thinking about something related to, I don't know, could be anything. Like I'm building a granny flat at the moment. So for the last year, I've been collecting designs I like, uh, like architects' comments about things, talking to people who have them. And I'm just collecting all these notes and all these ideas. And so when I go to speak to my architect, I'm like, this is all of my thoughts on this. (laughs) And it's not like I'm, like, oh, I'm just thinking about this for the first time. It's like it's been cooking away in the background. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and- yeah, I have to give you credit. Like when it, when it came to starting this podcast, I, you know, I knew, hey, Matt's the person I should speak to about this. He'll have lots of resources on this. And, yeah, I messaged you and I was like, Matt, I'm starting to, I want to start a podcast. What should I do? And, you know, within minutes you'd come back to me with, uh, with a list of, of list of articles or references um, you know, the right mic to buy, uh, software, recording software and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, no, I can, I can attest to that. And I'm not, and I'm not like storing it for the sake of some potential solution. It's like, these are questions I'm actively thinking about. And there's this process called 12 questions, which is like, you write down like 12 questions of that you're interested about in life in general. And these could be work-related or personal, whatever. And so anytime you see anything in your life or online or whatever related to your questions, you would like save that in your little questions folder. And Mm so over time, you just will, you'll just naturally accumulate stuff related to trying to answer the questions that you have for yourself. And so it, it, this is kind of a process of um, instead of thinking about projects or if I've got to write something, instead of trying to do it all in one big push, like I'm going to spend a day and just nail this, what I'll often do is I'm going to spend two weeks, but I'm not actually not going to work on it at all until a few days before because I've done all the work in just like collecting things and thinking about it and, and, and gathering this pile of stuff so that when I actually go to do it, it's, I, I'm already mostly done. It's just mm. about ordering it and putting it together. Um, and in that process, I mean, I, I take it you do a little bit of filtering or curating at the start. Like if, if you see an article on Granny Flats, you might read a bit of it or do you just dump it straight into that thing straight away without sort of filtering it? 
you're, you're, you're getting into it. This is a really deep, dark hole that you probably don't want to explore, but I'll, I'll do it because I'm so passionate <laughs> about it. There, there's a process um, created by Tiago Forte um, called progressive summarization, mm. and it's a five level of uh, of curation process. So, uh, and the first level of the creation process is like you find something online that you're interested in. So the first level is you would highlight the things from that article, for example, on Granny Flats that you liked, mm. that I like, and then those things go into my Evernote. And yep. then from that, I then bold the sections that I really like, that are like the top highlights of those highlights. And then I then highlight, actually like using the highlight feature, the things, the best of the bolder bits that I actually want. Yeah. And that's the next level. And then I'll write a summary for myself. And I don't do it all at once and it's this way you only do it when you need to do it. But what it means is that over time I can open up an article and I know exactly the top point because I've already progressively summarized it for myself. Mm. And so it's like it's thinking about things as like a, a pipeline of um, a, a progression of of refinement or selection. Yeah. And so basically means makes them more accessible for yourself as things progress down the pipeline. I think that's really cool. I think that's really I think that's a a I think that's a valuable thing for people to have. I, I often get annoyed when people just send me an article. Um it doesn't happen I don't know, it used to happen a lot more. I don't know, maybe people people aren't sending me as much these days, but <laughs> maybe I maybe because I told them I was like I pulled them up on it. You know, if someone sends you an article but gives no context, they'll just send you like a link to an article and and it's like, hey, you know, get out of that that it's sort of the, the it feels lazy. It's like here's something that you may be interested in, but I haven't explained why I'm sending it to you or provided context or provided context about what I like about this. Sort of I sort of had this rule with the guys, like if we're going to share stuff within the team, like share it in a channel on Slack, but then maybe add a few comments of this is why I'm sharing this or we have a meeting yeah. about why I'm sharing it as opposed to just like flicking something on and, and expecting someone to, to derive some meaning from it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the other thing with summarization and this kind of process is that it's pretty unique. Like the things I find interesting in an article, so I, I, I often share with someone else going, oh my gosh, you've got to see this. Like, this is amazing. And they read it and like, yeah, and like, what's interesting <laughs> about that? And, and so it's like, the, that's why I think having your own curated set of things that you are interested in and you find valuable is so helpful because you are going to see things differently from everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, and but, then you're, you're not actually relying on someone else to validate it for you. It's sort of like it's, st it's stored somewhere that's, that's personal for you and sort of confirms your own values. Yeah, and, and there's a particular way of, of categorizing this stuff that is, is very well developed. Um, and, and basically, I have, I think, I'm just looking now, about 100 different resource folders. So like these are things I've just passively collect on. Like I collect on podcasts and I collect on um, sales and recipes and productivity <laughs> and privacy and presentations and um, writing and wealth and et cetera, wow. et cetera, storytelling, um, electronics engineering. So I'm just like <laughs> literally just these just random things from my list. Yeah. And so if, if I see something online and I think, oh, my cooking folder, um, like I go into my cooking folder and there's this thing called mise en place, which is like a particular way of French of preparing food in a particular way that's kind of different to the way we'd normally do it 
in <laughs> Australia. And I'm like, I just capture it. It's so, oh, that sounds interesting. And it goes in and then I, it, it gets filtered and stuff. And it just means that it's like, it's just having knowledge accessible to me that is something I found interesting so that I'm never starting from scratch on anything. Mm. Um, That's cool. Yeah, I so, agree. So on Very that, cool. Matt, what do, you, what do you do outside of work for an escape? Oh, gosh, um, what do I do? I do a lot of um, Zen. That's probably the biggest thing I do as far as like time. So I, 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 I'm part of a Zen community in Brisbane and that involves retreats every month and some long retreats every year. And that's really cool. It's a tiny little group and I love being part of it. And then apart from that, I do a lot of geocaching. I don't know, if, have you done geocaching before? No. Oh, but I, I loosely know what it is and I played Pokemon Go, which I talked about in one of my recent episodes so um so I, it's I nothing like understand. pokemon go so uh, that's good so <laughs> so basically geocaching it's like there's these hidden containers all around the world and they're phys- most of them are physical like the actual physical things and the key thing with geocaching is that it's designed to take you to places that you wouldn't otherwise find on your own so when you, you go out for a weekend you want to go for a walk um somewhere nice and what i will do is open up the geocaching app and find up like a nice park or there'll be, there'll be something, there'll be a place nearby that I've never knew existed, but someone else who lives like right next to it or something knows about it, has placed an amazing geocache there that is a true experience to go and find. Like I found like amazing rock formations just near my house before, or there's like a lake that I found or a little quarry that I found just because a geocache is there. And yeah. so it, it basically takes me to places that I'd never otherwise find and, and also exposes me to new things and different ways of seeing the world. And yeah, it's, I think it's a very, cool. it's very cool for that, but I can't help myself. I had to start a business in it. So now I own the biggest geocaching retailer in Australia, which I just <laughs> kind of, it's kind of accidental, but I can't help myself. <laughs> and, and how is the demand for geocaching in Australia? It's actually really good, particularly in COVID times, because everyone like likes to get outside but not be with other people. So it's um it, it's it's something where people are really getting into it more and just the create the, there's a certain joy in finding the cache because they're often really well hidden. Mm. But it's so it's so fun to find something that like you've been looking, let's say in this two square meter area that we, where you think it is, you've been looking for half an hour in this same little area. And then you find it and it's like, it's just been there the whole time. You just can't see it. Like it's been hidden in plain sight. And then there's a, a sense of accomplishment and achievement when you're like, Oh, here it is. Like, wow. I, I, you just find it for the first time. And I think yeah. that's one of the things that make geocaching so fun is that thrill of the find. Yeah. And it's often, I mean, it's like a metaphor in, uh, for life, really. It's like, it's the journey, it's the experience in getting to that. Because you don't actually get anything, like, once you find the cache, I'm guessing that you just sort of, like, capture it in a log. You know, it's not like you, you take sign, it, you yeah, don't there, keep there, it, there's dude. A physical lo- yeah, there's a physical log book that you sign your name in and then you put it back. Yeah. And, yeah, no, it, it's absolutely the thrill of the find. And it's also just, like, the experience of how clever someone is in, in hiding something. It's like, wow, that was so cool. <laughs> uh, I never knew that you could hide a cache like that. Like I've got a few ones out in, in the Mount Cravat area that are, um, they're like metal plates that I painted to be the same color of the, the metal that they're attached to. So they're yellow, like yellow street signs type things. Mm. And 
And so I've created these metal plates and stuck them on there. And so a passerby would never know they're a geocache. But if you know that, like you, you can see and you're like, that metal doesn't quite look right. Like it just kind of, <laughs> it's a bit out of place. And then you feel like you're running on this secret joke. Yeah, like it, it's cool. like everyone passed by and no one realizes and you're sort of part of a club. Yeah. That's what I think. That's, so how, cool. how can people find out more about geocaching? Uh, geocaching.com. Okay. Um, geocaching.com, easy. And we, we call non-geocaching folk muggles. So, <laughs> so, uh, well, I, as a Harry Potter fanatic, I, uh, yeah, I can appreciate the reference there. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't let the muggles see you. <laughs> That's awesome. Matt, is there someone in your life who's had a huge impact on your personal growth? Yeah, so many people. Um, Because I've been involved in personal growth for a long time with personal development. There's so many people. But the one that I sort of is right present for me now that I would speak to is um, there's a woman called Elizabeth Sinot or Diz, as I know her. And she's my psychodrama supervisor, which is psychodrama is a type of group work. It's really hard to explain. But basically, it's kind of like the virtual reality stuff I talked about in earlier, except it's lived experience so we do we create experiences on a stage and then you get to explore being yourself or things you might do or other ways of being in the world with others and she's she's been my supervisor there and what I really learned from her over the last few years is how to be truly direct with other people mm-hmm. and like one of the things that I've been not great at through my life is going against people. So I'm very good at going along with people like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But I haven't been very good at going against people. And what she's been able to teach me is how to go against people in a way that's kind of loving and compassionate. And so one of the things I've started doing recently with her support is like saying to someone, I'm completely against you on this, like hundred percent against you. And I'm still okay with like, and, and, and still, if you want to do it, let's do it. Like yeah. it's this, how do I be against people and supportive of them at the same time? Um, so I, I, she's I really think, teaching me I how think to the be world, more dynamic. I think the world needs uh, those types of skills, more of those types of skills. <laughs> Is yeah, that, um, totally. That understanding yeah. and compassion and ability to disagree with someone, fundamentally disagree with someone's point of view or, or belief, but, uh, but accept it and go, and go with it and, still, and move on and be friends still. <laughs> And, and sometimes it's required and say work. So in, in my, like in, in my role as in the software team, sometimes if someone's not speaking up, I'm going to be like, I completely against you staying silent in this meeting. You like, you have a massive contribution and I'm against you being silent. I'm against you being a, a, um, a like a spectator in this. You're mm. important and you need to speak up. Go for it. Like, <laughs> And really provoking people, yeah. um, and and this has provoked me so many times that I I feel I've got the confidence from watching her do it that I can do it too. Yeah, that's cool. And on that, I mean, something else that um that I've seen in the work that you do is some work in in rites of passage for men. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, so I'm involved with rites of passage for men, but also with rites of passage for boys or teenagers. And the teenage one's probably where I'm, I'm most experienced and most passionate. And that's kind of like, as a teenager, I, I was like a lot of teenagers and I was really addicted to the world of Warcraft and gaming and kind of very inwardly focused. Like teenagers thing is like, it's all about me. Mm. And like, and I'm sure probably you might've experienced that too, but there's this, self-focus as teenagers um and 
my dad took me on this rite of passage camp and I had no idea what it was at the time. But basically my experience was there was that I was able to be accepted for who I was, just like without any strings attached, whoever I am is okay. And that self-acceptance that I was able to feel there helped access it in myself. And over a few years, I was able to really accept and love myself, which was something that like, I know people, it's like, oh, self-love, et cetera, et cetera. But like in a really authentic way that um, I'm very grateful for. Mm. And so like there is rights of passage for women, but I'm, I'm involved with the the boys one yeah. um, because I'm a man, obviously. But it, it's a case of, it's really an opportunity to do what, uh, communities have done for thousands of years, which is provide a space for people to move from one stage of their life to another stage. So traditionally yeah. there would be some sort of challenge and you, you get taken away from your home or your, your community. You do some sort of ordeal, you get like honored for being who you are and then you go back. Mm. And that's what we do. So we do a similar, uh, like a modernized version of what communities all around the world have been doing thousands of years because the the kind of the way it tends to work is that if you don't get initiated formally by someone else you'll self-initiate so you, you need that separation often like it's the space from parents it's that who am I if I'm not my parents so teenagers normally start pushing away at about that like 13 to 15 age range and yeah. wanting their own independence, wanting a sense of themselves, but they don't really know how to get it. And there's not really a safe way that's endorsed for them to get that. And so it tends to be often in unhealthy ways. And that's like risk-taking behaviors, like, I don't know, drugs, alcohol, like uh, lots of dangerous sports, for example. Mm. Um, or it's like, or becomes really self self sort of focus like what I was doing with like the World of Warcraft type stuff of being very computer focused. And so what we do is provide a space where there can be that initiation in a safe community supported way yeah. that provides all the good things but really minimizes the downsides. And um, the reason I do it is like I got so much from it myself and, and it was hugely a gift that I got. And like my example was when I got home from the camp at 15, I gave up, I was like truly addicted to World of Warcraft at that time and I gave it up cold turkey. It was just like, I was like, if I want to be like those guys I saw on the camp who are leading it, which I'm now, so it's kind of full circle, I need to get life experience and I'm not going to get that through a game. So I need to give up the game is what I decided. And yeah. I don't know how I decided this as a 15-year-old. It seems like a very adult thing to think, but it was just <laughs> what came to thing. me. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then I decided I wanted a challenge in school. And I don't, again, I'm like, why? But I decided to skip up a grade in high school. And so I went to the, I said to my mom, can I skip up a grade? And she was like, okay, I guess like I don't have anything wrong with that. And then I persuaded the school to let me skip up a grade and all this stuff. And it's like, and that was all from me. There was nothing from like the outside pr promoting that to me. And so it's, yeah. it's this thing of like when you're able to expo expose what's actually in each of us to to live as what who we want to be, it tends to create great opportunities. And so, yeah, that's what we do. And I, I'm, I'm running one next week. So this time next week, I'll be well and truly on the camp. That's awesome. Um, and I, I, re I really like that. I really admire that. Um, I think it's something that's massively... Uh, 
underused and utilized in our society. You, you know, you spoke before about when, when boys don't have these rites of passage or these coming of age or initiation, they rely on sort of da- more dangerous things like, you know, drugs, alcohol. I think of, you know, like as a young 20 year old, you know, you can, you can prove you're a man by driving fast, getting in fights yeah. or going out and having sex or, you know, like trying to attract totally. partners that way. Like, like there's no, stuff. yeah, there's, it, it is really sort of self-destructive behavior and there aren't ways to sort of prove um, that, you're, <laughs> that you're developing. Plus it's also the risk of having a pretty un- underdeveloped brain of, of men, you know, before 25. Um, so you, you're often prone to taking risks or making dumb decisions. Um, so yeah, yeah, I really, I really and, think it's and that's there's totally normal. That. What you just mentioned, like those sort of risk take behaviors, like, and it's not like a bad thing. Like everyone's doing the best they can, but it's a case of there is other alternatives that have been done for a long time, and how mm. can we bring those and make those accessible? Um, yeah. and so that's what we do. Yeah. Um, there's there's a guy. Um, the, uh, I mean, we we can talk about this because we both do CrossFit, but um. There's a, there was a kid at our gym who's, who's now a man at our gym and he's 22, but he started at 17. And I think like, um, you know, having that development, um, you know, to see how he's developed as a, as a young man now. So he came in, you know, a grade 11, uh, school kid and, you know, really shy, um, you know, quite skinny, um, but, but wanted to do CrossFit to help his basketball and to just see his, him develop both physically but also socially, you know, being around mm. people who are double, triple his age um, and hold conversations and also set goals and, and sort of track progress. I think like putting someone in, in an environment like that um, where there's sort mm. of a measurable progression but also you can set yourself challenges and sort of see yourself achieve things, you know, set personal goals of lifting things and, and achieving that. Um, but also and just being around adults. And he the same things like... He- yeah, and he has the same things. Like he has mentors. Like it sounds like you're you're at least peripherally involved as kind of mentoring him, even if indirectly. You know. Mm. Yeah. So he he sees how he sees how other people behave in in the real world. Um, yes. And you know has and has these people as peers rather than um, you know just people that he might run into occasionally. So yeah, I, I really like any any community environment like that 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 can provide for young men or you know young people in general. I think is really cool. Yeah, and I think for me, and, and it's the same on our, on our camps, often people get more coming back, like just like this guy you were talking about has come back over the, the years and has kind of grown up in that environment. I kind of grew up in this environment of being involved with these rites of passage things. And so all the mentors that I got through those programs, invaluable, like like totally I I would not be the person I am today without the support and the mentorship of those older men. Mm. And so what we do as well, it's like what, what you're talking about in the gym is we provide an example. There's like, there'll be like 60 men there on next week and they're all like providing different examples of what it like, what it's like to be a man in the world. Mm. And it's not like, cause a lot of boys, they grow up and they only see a few different examples of men in their life. Like they might have their dad and an uncle maybe, and maybe a granddad, but that's not maybe a school teacher, but it's probably, there's not too many men around that mm. are directly involved with them. And whereas like you guys at the gym, you're seeing this guy every day, how are you going? And he's like, he's, he's going to use you guys as role models. And I think yeah. that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Too. That's all amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Matt, 
I mean, thank you for being so generous with your time. I've got a few questions in closing uh, to wrap up. So firstly, I mean, you, you're a wealth of knowledge. You're probably going to have a folder on your phone or somewhere for this. But what are your yes. favorite books or podcasts that you can recommend? Uh, I'll, I'll stick to two books and one podcast. So the books that I recommend is there's a great book on learning called Make It Stick um, by Mark McDaniel and Peter Bryan. Brown. And basically that's a book on learning. So I think to be a good human in the world, learning is important. And the way we've been taught to learn in general is pretty faulty. Like um, it doesn't work particularly well. And mm. these guys have put together basically what is the evidence on how learning works and how do, how should you learn if you want to learn anything. Um, and so I think that book's like everyone should read that from a perspective of you're a human, you need to learn things. This is how to learn things. That's um, cool. And then Three Pillars of Zen are also say that's a great book by Philip Kaplow. And this was a, 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 a an early book for me in my Zen practice of really exposing me to the world of kind of uh, the Zen way of looking at things. And it's about uh, humans being okay as they are and the challenges of what it means to be a human in the world. And I feel very um, that the book has a lot of problems with it technically, but it's, it's a really great, uh, it was very inspirational for me for a long time. And so I, I, I'd really recommend that as well. Um, and then for a podcast, I'm going to choose something really unconventional and it's a podcast called Robot or Not. Um, <laughs> and it's podcast, I, I don't know, have you listened to it at all? No, never heard of it. Okay. Well, it's a podcast that basically it's by these, one of these favorite, my favorite tech commentator people called John Syracuse. And he basically talks about the definitions of, of things. And it started out trying to decide what is a robot, like is a Roomba a robot, is a, is a, is a self-driving car a robot, what's a robot? And that, that's where it started off. And now it's progressed into really crazy topics, which, and they're all really short podcasts. It's like two or three minutes, but it'll be like a really funny discussion or really interesting discussion on something like, um, there was one that might relate to you, like, what is milk? Like, is almond milk milk? Like, <laughs> what makes what makes something milk? And yeah. like, or, or, or like, um, what what's a doorway? Like, is does a door have to have a door in the doorway to make it a doorway, or is just like any space that? On, like, well, what is a doorway? Like these stupid <laughs> questions, or like on, with on soup, almond milk? What soup? On almond Go milk. On. Is it almond milk or is it nut juice? Well, this is, uh, I, I'm not going to spoil it, what John, but, but like, because there's all these milk type products, but are they milk? And it's like, what is bread? Does bread have to be puffy? Or like, what's a crack? Like, what's the difference between like a bread, bread and a cracker, for example? Like, and um, there's That's a funny, funny legal case about that in Australia. But yeah, it's all these stupid <laughs> questions. And I think like, we're all, there's so much serious stuff in life at the moment, particularly like, with the whole COVID thing, it's like, here's something completely different. Like I was listening to an episode this morning on this podcast. It's like, what is soup? Like if, if you like is melted ice cream in a bowl soup, like (laughs) what, like what makes something a soup? Um, and I know I just, I really enjoy (laughs) crazy questions like that. That's great. It's good, good to um, then take and debate with friends. No, that's a good one. Yes, that's exactly it. Uh, That's, we, that's exactly what I do. Exactly. Love it. Well, Matt, thank you for being so generous with your time. So in closing, who is someone remarkable in branding, marketing, or software development that you know that we should speak to? 
there's a guy called Andy Roy, um, who's a very good friend of mine. He's done rights of passage with me for a long time, but he's also a successful businessman and he's created um, a retail nursery in Brisbane called Oxley Nursery, which you might have been to. I'm, my guess is most people who have a garden in Brisbane probably have been there at one point. And um, he has done something that I think is pretty remarkable, which is he has like product launches a few times a year and he's created this amazing loyal following. And I don't know how he's done it, but it's pretty amazing because let's say he's got a product launch or he's got an event on, he'll have people camping outside the nursery like two days in advance so they can be wow. in line, like first in line to, to like be able to get in when, when they open on that day. And that's awesome. I've, I've never seen, seen it happen anyone... for Apple. I've seen it happen, yeah, it's happen Apple. for like that's Apple it. or for concerts or for, you know, there was a skate brand Supreme in, in New York, which has a line around yes. the corner. But mate, I have not seen it for a nursery. So that's pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and this is like serious fandom. Like people will go out, like will travel interstate, well, back when that was possible, just to come and visit the nursery. And I'm like, what, how has he done that? And, and so uh, I think he would definitely be worth talking to That's about cool. creating brand loyalty. Love that. Yeah, I'd love to chat to him. And Matt, what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Uh, I, Gosh, uh, this is a hard one. I think I'm going to go with a really abstract, very deep quote, um, which is somewhat Zen related. Um, and it's the quote goes something that goes like this. You won't understand life and death until you're ready to set aside any hope of understanding life and death and just live your life until you die. Um, <laughs> I like that. Is that a bit heavy for you? No, there that's you go. good. I like it. <laughs> um, and Matt, in and that's fi- by Brad Warner, by the way. Brad Warner. Cool. Finally, Matt, where can people learn more about you? I've got a website, matthewbarham.com, and I've got a page there about what I'm working on at the moment, like right now. Mm-hmm. I update that every few days. So if you're interested in wanting, what I'm doing or want to get involved in anything, you can go there and see that. Um, and I also put out a weekly newsletter every Sunday with thoughts and things I'm thinking about and useful links like the stuff I've talked about today. So if you're interested in that, you can check it out there. Awesome. Well, mate, thanks for taking the time. I've had a great time chatting with you and uh, yeah, I've learned a hell of a lot. No worries, Dan. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of DSR Branding Presents. To learn more about the guests or the things discussed, head to our website, dsrb.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoyed it, please let me know and spread the word by sharing it with a friend. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. I hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.